0: Time, hmm? you've been to the village you've been to the village no I've
1: been to New Goverdans lots and lots of yeah, times I'm trying to think of if I've been to the village don't before think I don't know
0: don't think so. I'm not sure <laughs> 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 yeah. so it's a great honor yeah. and privilege yeah. to have Marvur and Miller take a, a, a valuable time in the itinerary to come and share with us okay Thanks. thank you, thank you.
1: So I wasn't asked to do a particular topic today, so I was... Can you all hear me without a mic? Everybody in the back? I feel like I'm waiting too everybody. Anyone who can't hear you
0: just come forward? So yeah, come. I, I just feel like
1: there's this huge
0: yeah, like physical gap. Yeah. Everyone come forward.
1: Okay, that's a little better. <laughs> So I, I wasn't asked to do a particular topic for today, so I didn't prepare a particular topic, although if everybody really wants a topic, mm-hmm. we could do that. So I was thinking of just having kind of an open Q&A, anything that anybody would like to ask about Basta Yoga?
0: Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment, it's um, a yoga style book, and one of the things came up um, was to, to be happy for other people's happiness, oh. no matter what and i'm kind of a little bit stuck with it okay um it's difficult to be happy for people's happiness when it's causing harm to other living beings okay or when i feel like maybe they should know better you know that sort of thing so how mm. do you feel happy for people without judging them
1: Okay. Why don't we separate these two things—the judging—and then the being happy for others' happiness? Can we separate that into two things? Is that okay with everybody? So it's it's one of the, I you don't know, truths of people in 2019 that you're never supposed to judge anybody. But I mean, on a societal level, that's actually an absurdity. Does this mean that we shouldn't have any courts? I mean, does it mean that we should, what does it mean exactly? Does it mean we shouldn't have any more laws, you know, rape, murder, arson, thievery is all okay, because, and nobody should come before a judge and be judged? So nobody would, would say, well, no, that, that's cool. You know, we'll, we'll just have total anarchy, and if you want to rape, murder, and burn, and steal, you know, we won't judge you. <laughs> so that, that's absurd. Now, on a personal level, we're supposed to have some discretion about who we spend our time with. So we're not supposed to go out of our way. I mean, sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes it's just imposed upon you. But we're not supposed to go out of our way to become very close to people who are going to damage us. We have some responsibility to not intentionally allow ourselves to be damaged. Again, sometimes that sometimes we can't do anything about it. I mean, there are sometimes you're in a circumstance where you just There's nothing you can do. But generally speaking, we have some choice about who we spend our time with, who we reveal our mind with, who we open our heart to, who we become vulnerable with. Yes? And to decide to what extent we should be open with other people, we have to make some judgment about both ourselves and the other person. So we have to say, okay, well, these are the things that really matter to me and this person is going to honor them, or this person is neutral toward them, or this person is going to trample them, and decide how we deal with others accordingly. And this is actually a responsibility that we have to ourselves, and it's a very important and sacred responsibility to ourselves. So my understanding about when we talk about not judging others is not becoming proud and thinking that I'm better than somebody not having a self-righteous kind of judgment or a moral superiority kind of judgment. Mm-hmm. Because, first of all, that's a lot of rubbish. As souls, we're all equal, and we all have things that are difficult for us, we all have weaknesses, and just because my difficulties and my weaknesses are not yours doesn't mean that I can stand above you and say, well, I'm better than you because I don't struggle with what you struggle with. That's absurd. That's absurd. You know, and it's even if you are a judge in a court of law, you're not supposed to have a mood of pride. You're not even supposed to look at, you know, someone who was a serial killer of fifteen people and torture them and think, Well, I'm so much better than you because I've never hit anybody in my life. You know, that, that's that kind of mentality, according to the Bhagavatam, that kind of mentality makes us guilty. If I look at others and I, I blame and I criticize and I try to stand above them, then, then I'm also a wrongdoer. So I understand it like that. But if, if you just say, well, you know, everything everybody does is okay and I can be, you know, I can have any relationship with anybody, that's not going to work on a personal level or on a societal level. Does that make sense to everybody? You know, I think sometimes we, we struggle with this idea of, you know, oh, I shouldn't be judgmental. Uh, you know, some things are objectively bad. In, in almost every society, I mean, there have been some societies where, you know, cannibalism is part of the society. But generally, we human beings don't accept that that's something we want in the world. And if you were in Nazi Germany, you know, then it was just perfectly fine to put Jews and homosexuals and, into concentration camps and experiment on them. You know, that was just cool. But that doesn't mean it's actually cool. I, I think, you know, we have, uh, generally in the world, we do have some concepts that some things are just evil, even if there's a group of people that engage in them, even if a particular society supports them. We we don't just say that anything anybody wants to do is equally good. There was um, some sociological studies of what were the universal moral principles, transcultural moral principles, and the researchers came up with five of them. Now, these five have very different meanings in different cultures and different emphases in different cultures, but they came up with purity, authority, fairness, community, and harm. So that in every culture there's a concept that purity is better than impurity. Now, how people define purity may be very, very different from one culture to another. So there's some cultures where, you know, if you kill an animal in this way, it's, it's pure, and if you kill them in this way, it's not pure. So there may be some concept of purity like that. But, but the idea of purity is there. And you can see that has a biological basis. If we contact impure things, we become ill. And then authority, that in every culture there's some concept that you should respect authority. And again, you can see that it has a biological basis. All of us were born as helpless infants. You know, we all had a mother and father. And if we didn't have some respect for our mother and father, if we didn't follow our mother and father, we would probably again get very injured or even die. So there's, there's some biological basis that's not, that there's certain people who have some authority, and those people need to be treated with more respect. And again, how we define authority and how we define respect varies tremendously from one culture to another. Then fairness is an interesting concept, because I don't see that fairness has a strictly biological basis. It seems to have more of a rational human social basis. Although it's interesting, there have been a number of animal experiments that at least some animals have concepts of fairness at least like the great apes, and, you know, they have some concept of fairness. And without fairness, you know, you have an exploitive society. So that may be all right if you're one of the exploiters. You know. <laughs> then okay, I don't need to worry about fairness. But as far as society in general, if there's not some sort of a value of fairness, then the society is going to have some imbalance and some suffering. And then community, the concept of loyalty, to a group. And again, you can see this as a biological basis in family, but also very, very few human beings are able to provide all their own necessities alone, whereas humans are social creatures. I mean, some people do, but it's, it's quite difficult. So the concept of some loyalty to a community, that we work together and help each other. Again, how do you define community? Right? What does it mean to be loyal? What does it mean? That varies among cultures. And then harm. Don't do harm to others. So again, every human society has a value in don't harm others. Now how we define what is harm, how we respond to harm, again, a huge variation. So when we're talking about judging, again, all human beings have some sense of good and bad. They may define it somewhat differently. They may have Some places may emphasize community more than others. Some places may emphasize fairness more than others. But those are universal, ethical, and moral principles. Now, as far as being happy at others' happiness, so my spiritual master, uh, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, he defined the difference between material and spiritual. At least sometimes he defined it like this that material means I am happy at others' unhappiness, and unhappy at others' happiness, which we could say is a basic definition of envy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'm okay if you're happy as long as you're not as happy as I am. You know, you can have a nice car as long as my car is nicer. You know, your romantic partner can be attractive as long as mine is more attractive. You know, your kids can get good grades as long as my kids are smarter. So it, it's basically an exploitive mentality where, you know, a, a lot of the, what passes for news in modern society is criticism of people who are rich, famous, beautiful, intelligent, accomplished, and so forth that we, we take pleasure in seeing these people be taken down a notch or have some sort of a problem. Mm. And you'll see that again in human society that there is efforts, there are efforts to uplift people who are suffering more than us, but not usually uplift them up to our level. Mm. Have you noticed that? You know, if if people who are well off try to help poor people, they don't usually try to bring the poor people up to their level. They want to lift them out of poverty, but not too much. So this is what constitutes materialism. Materialism isn't really, do I have a car and do I have a television set? That's not, but it's a mentality of envy. It's a mentality of exploitation. And spiritual is just the opposite. I'm sad at others' sadness, and I'm happy at others' happiness. I want others to be happy. In fact, I want others to be as happy or more happy than I am. So we do see that in this world. You especially see this within a family and particularly between parents and children. Now, we've got a lot of messed up parents in the world just because people can produce a child doesn't mean they necessarily have this mentality. But generally, parents think of their children as part of them because the child's body comes from the parent's body. So there's some idea that the child is is an extension of myself. And so particularly we see with parents that parents will often be happy at their children's being happier than they are. You know, so parents who never finish secondary school, if their kid can graduate from college, they, they're happy for that. And they're genuinely happy at their children exceeding them. So that, that's the relationship where you're most likely to find this decrease of envy, is in the parent-child. But some parents are envious of their children. Right? Certainly that's true. And ideally, this happens in any kind of close intimate relationship. You know, ideally, you're happy if your romantic partner is happy. And ideally, you want your romantic partner to be happier even than you. And the same with your friend. Or, you know, ideally, but that's also the case. So then, let's put those two things together. So, is happiness just somebody saying, I'm happy? And we say we're happy for others' happiness. If someone says, Well, I'm happy, you know, I'm, I'm happy by being a thief, I'm happy by being a heroin addict, I'm, I'm happy by, you know, working in the government and extorting money from the poor people and exploiting the environment to line my pockets, I feel very happy. So that's when we put these two things together. And in the Bhagavad Gita, there's a discussion about different kinds of happiness. So happiness in what's called the mode, which you'll Aurobindo calls the mode of ignorance, what I like to call the the ego shade of of delusion, where it's it's like you had a, a dark covering over the window, you can't see anything. So there, Krishna says that somebody thinks what's good is bad and what's bad is good, and that happiness in that consciousness is not happiness at all. It's just not happiness at all. It, it's it's some sort of illusion, completely. And it's opposite. So if someone, you know, well, I'm, I'm happy by taking heroin. That, that's not happiness, it's suffering. You know, I'm, I'm happy by killing animals. That's not happiness, it's suffering. You're enjoying suffering. Uh, when I was in secondary school, I remember reading a book about this, uh, this man, Nat Turner, who was instrumental in trying to free the African slaves in the United States. And at one point he was jailed for his activities and in the jail they just had a a bucket for their toilet and so the bucket was full of feces and urine. And there were flies there in the bucket. And he looked at the flies and he said, they're not happy. That's not happiness. He said, from the perspective of the fly, it may say it's happiness, but I can understand that that's not happiness. So then there's happiness in the mode of passion, or Sanskrit word is raja. So that kind of happiness is what basically, when we think about materialistic life. Um, you know, you have a good job, you earn an honest livelihood, you pay your taxes, you have a nice house, you have a family, you have a good backyard, maybe you have a dog, you have a flat-screen TV in every room, you give money to charity, you support the, your local museums, and, you know, the what we call like civilized human society would be this this ego covering of rajas. So there Krishna says the kind of happiness you get is just it's happiness of the body, sex, eating good food, comfortable chairs, nice clothes, enough money in the bank, and some mental idea of happiness that, oh, look at this big house I have, look at the family and friends, I'm such a good person, I do so much for society. It's a happiness of other people praising you. But it's not inner joy. Now, that kind of happiness is considered karma. The ignorance is considered vikarma. And, okay, if, you, if you're really good in, in raja, then you'll get to take your next birth as a human being, and if you're really good in raja, you'll be a very rich or powerful human being. It's what we would call pious activity or good karma. But it's not joy. So we're definitely happier if people are in rajas rather than tamas. So if you're charitable and you support museums and you take care of your family and you work honestly, and you know, we're definitely happier for you than if you're just lying around all day in a filthy house, you know, drunk all the time. But ultimate happiness is, is a step above that. So beyond Rajas is what's called sattva. Satva is still the ego covering, but sattva uh, means truth and goodness, and eternality. So most people who are interested in yoga are interested in sattva. They might not be in sattva, but at least they're interested in sattva. So in sattva is where you feel in your heart a sense of equanimity, a sense of mercy, forgiveness, peace, and and some real joy. So like in Rajas, in the Bhagavad Gita, it says that what looks like happiness in the beginning becomes unhappiness at the end. You know, you, you work really, really hard, you're putting in 70, 80 hours a week to make a lot of money, and at the end you just regret how you spend your life. You know, so it, it's, it's that kind of happiness. But in sattva, it's almost real happiness. It's, it's a platform for real happiness. And there you're still doing good, but you're doing good Not so you can get a big house and so you can get praised and your statue can get up in the park. But you're doing good because it just feels so good to do good. Mm -hmm. You know, in in Thomas, you don't forgive anybody. You're expert in insulting others. In Rajas, you forgive because you can say, I am a forgiving person. And other people say, oh, you're so forgiving, (laughs) you (laughs) bring And in Sattva, you forgive because when you forgive, you're like, wow, what a relief. (coughs) So certainly we're very happy if people are, in, are experiencing sattva happiness over Raja and Thomas. But ultimate happiness is not in any of those. Ultimate happiness is enlightenment. Ultimate happiness is transcendent. Ultimate happiness is your forgiving and your kind and your in equilibrium because that's how you express your love for Krishna. That's how you express your love for the Divine not because it makes you feel good. You're feeling good as a side effect. You're not doing things to feel good. You're doing things out of love. And naturally you feel good because you're good. So as a general principle, spiritual means that I don't envy anyone's happiness. But at the same time, I can recognize that some people's happiness is not real happiness for them. So if I'm happy at others' happiness, then I would like to bring them to a higher stage of happiness. Not to condemn them for having a lower type of happiness. So if someone's saying, well, I'm happy eating my steak burger, you know, I'm happy you have some food. I'm happy you're not starving. I don't want you to be starving. Nor do I want you to suffer the bad karmic reaction for eating your steak burger. I'm not thinking,
0: Oh, you're going to get it next (laughs) (laughs) time.
1: I'm happy you have some food, and I'm happy you're enjoying your food. But what I'd really like would be for you to come to a level of happiness that's not dependent on harming other living beings. So that's when you put those things together. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, you. Hopefully, you're all interested in that because it took me a long answer. <laughs> Some questions have like a one-word answer. <laughs> that was a little deep. Sometimes someone asks a question like just like yes, and okay, next. <laughs> it's something we should we should be looking at in ourselves. You know, if I'm ever like, oh, you got what was coming to you, yeah. You know, we should watch for that.
0: In ourselves. Yes. So, like when you say, for example, like just because you brought up the, the meat um, example, how I just struggle with like feeling sad or um, even compassionate about around people who are not that aware and then they are my friends or my family and I'm in the environment and then.
1: I just... But compassion is that you want to bring them to a higher level.
0: Yeah, and then I just... But it's like that feeling of I can't express myself, I can't truly be myself because as soon as I do that, I just kind of, you know, get You can on. express
1: yourself internally to Krishna. Always. I don't think any of us are in a situation where we can always express ourselves honestly to the people we're with all the time that would be pretty interesting. I'd like to meet a person who had that kind of life, you know. Maybe they always live out in the woods and they only see one or two people once a week or something. I, I, I think that all of us have to moderate what we express to whom and how. I was just talking to someone today who said, the way that I keep good relationships with these two people in my life is I don't tell either of them everything. <laughs> and he said, no, if I do that selfishly, then I get in trouble. But if I do that out of love and respect for them, then everything works very well. Mm-hmm. And are most of us in situations like that, where we have you know, some close relationships with two people and we can't tell person A everything about person B, and we can't tell person B everything about person A, even though they know each other? But you can always talk to Krishna; he's in your heart. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. How do you explain the difference between your dharma and desire? Or how how do you find what's the
1: relationship? Hmm. What do you mean by dharma? Dharma is an interesting word. So how are you defining dharma? Because otherwise I might answer the, a question that you're not asking.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so you have two different dharmas, uh, serving the Lord and Can serving, you speak a little bit louder? Uh, serving God and serving the planet, the others. So how do you yeah, differentiate what drives you, what the energy, what brings you to achieving something for others and desire or something you want to achieve? What do you find? What is right? What is not right? What is.
1: Are you asking kind of a greater question as to how do we know what we're supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I'm writing a whole book on this with a co author. Our working title is The Natural Art of Work, but I think that's, that needs to be a subtitle. We haven't come up with the title yet. And it's focused on career. That's the focus of the book, is career. So according to Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam, especially Bhagavatam, we have basically three realms of action. One is in, our, in the purely spiritual action, to connect with the divine, to achieve enlightenment of love for Krishna. Then the next has to do with how we maintain ourselves in this world. What is our livelihood? What do we do so that we can eat? And so we have some shelter. So we have clothes. How do we, how do we maintain ourselves? And then the other has to do with our moving through the natural biological life cycle. So let's look at the life cycle first, because that's almost entirely biological. Not entirely. It has something to do with desire, but it's almost entirely biological. So when we're young, when we're children, the main thing we're supposed to do on that level is learn. And that's, again, in pretty much every human society. Sometimes we mess it up and exploit children. But generally, in a human society, children are educated. Yes? So your main duty when you're a child or a teenager is to get an education, and that education is to prepare you for your livelihood and for your spirituality. Then when we hit physical maturity until about the middle of life, then generally we have two strong inclinations. One is a sexual inclination, and the other is an inclination to do something in the world, to use our... Talents, our abilities, our desires to do something in the world that will also maintain ourselves. And so the, the duties then are: if you want a sexual relationship, I'm sorry if I'm going to offend anybody here, but you get married. So if you don't like that, I'm sorry. That's you know you take responsibility for somebody basically that you don't use sexuality to exploit others, but you use sexuality in a way that honors you and the other person. You take responsibility for them. And you produce nice children. And then we'll get into livelihood in a moment. And then when you get to the middle part of life, generally sexual desires start going down. You're not usually able to have children anymore. And generally one's desire for a livelihood goes down too. Which is why, again, that's about the time when people retire and stop working. And it's often when people get a little detached from family. You know, like my parents at that time traveled to Disney World and the Panama Canal and mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: places like that, Egypt. Mm-hmm. And, but it's a time when you, when you want to do that. You want to, you want to relax, you want to travel, you want to stop working so hard. Your desire to fix the world and change the world and make an impact, and it, it decreases. So your sexual desires decrease, your desire to change the world decreases, you know, your children are grown up, you, you shift to kind of a retirement phase and a working on yourself and building yourself and then usually by the very end of life, generally there's some decrease physically and sometimes even mentally and you start withdrawing even more from the world and you, you start losing your interest in doing things in the world and you start focusing more on preparing for your next transition of so we have duties in each of those so spiritually, when you're young, you should not only study about mathematics and geography and, you know, computer programming, but you should also study something about yoga. You should study something about connection. You should study something about how you're going to, to live as a divine being. And during the middle part of life, you shouldn't just be having sex with anybody and everybody without any kind of consideration and making money anyway and however but one should actually have a position of responsibility and care and reciprocation. And in the middle age, instead of just traveling to Disney World, one should travel to holy places. And one should really focus on spiritual study and purification. And at the very, very end of life, and also in the middle and end of life, one should share one's wisdom of one's life, to write books, to teach. And at the very end of life, then one should prepare oneself spiritually for death, not just to go to an old age home and sit around watching you know, Elvis Presley impersonators perform in the common room which is what exactly what happens. Uh, but one should engage at the end of life in, in deep meditation and detachment from the world. So those are the duties according to the natural biological life cycle. And, and also according to inclination. Some people never want to marry and some people never want to have a career and they they basically jump right to a stage of retirement. They, they they never live on the world as an ordinary person. You know, in every tradition, like people who are lifetime monks, for example. Or people who just travel and do some odd job to maintain themselves. They don't really have a livelihood. They never have a family. So there are people. So then in the area of I'm going to take the hardest thing last. So then we'll take the area of spirituality. So spiritually we're all equal as souls, and all of us have in one sense the same duty. To love God, to connect with Him, to have love for all living beings, to to take care of our body and mind and others and the planet out of love for Him. And and then there's different ways we can do that. Do you still have a copy of my novel here that you were reading my biography? Unfortunately, I don't have any more. I've sold out all the copies that I brought here. But yeah, I wrote this fictional book about the path to enlightenment. And there I, I go through the, the four main ways of, of spiritual duty, spiritual connection, which is devotion connection, mastery connection, action connection, and knowledge connection. So we in the Hare Krishna movement are primarily in the devotion connection. When you're practicing what we normally call yoga, that's in the mastery connection. All these things about the chakras, that's all mastery. And knowledge connection is when you connect with the divine through science and philosophy and study. And action connection is when you do good works that you dedicate to the divine. That's a very simplified
0: form of explaining
1: then within them, each of us also has our own desire. You know, just like in the Hare Krishna movement, so we chant on beads, we have kirtan, we do service at the temple, Uh, we study books of philosophy. And different people may prefer different ones of those, more or less, according to their own personal desire. And one is encouraged to engage in those according to one's desire. And as one starts to reach a stage of enlightenment and the devotion connection, what happens is you realize your eternal personality, which is different from the personality and form that we have in this particular lifetime. And that eternal form and personality is a spiritual manifestation of our ultimate loving desire. Just like this one is a gross expression of my actions and desires in previous lives and, and earlier in this life. So I have an ultimate spiritual form that is the manifestation of a particular loving desire I have with the divine. And for each of us, that's different. I mean, this life, we each have different fingerprints and different DNA, even though it's just a temporary body. So we have a, a, a very unique and individual relationship with the divine. And that eventually awakens... You know, many, if, if many people who are into mastery connection and they're thinking about maybe awakening the kundalini, which, by the way, is dangerous for a lot of people to do, and for opening up all the chakras and understanding that they're a soul. But often the, they don't teach anything beyond that. So you understand you're a soul, okay, then what? What do I do as a soul? Who am I as a soul? What is my identity? Mm-hmm, right. So the, the ultimate understanding of that awakening is very, very individual. Okay, now we'll go to the... And that So that's very much based on desire, how you engage. You know, there there's several paths which are, which all work. Which of those four paths you take, or sometimes combinations of those, is according to your desire. How you engage in those paths is according to your desire. And as you come to a point of enlightenment, how you, your relationship with Krishna is according to your desire. All right, then we have the most complicated one, which I'm going to speak about very briefly, because I said I have a whole book on it of like 300 pages. Um, livelihood is basically uh, should be at least according to the Bhagavad Gita a junction of our nature and then certain dharmic principles of how we use our nature so what is our nature? Our, our nature changes from life to life but in a particular life we have a particular nature there's a particular way that we like to be and it's very much connected to desire but it's not connected to desire in the sense of, you might say, wow, well, I'd like to be a rock and roll star because they have so many people you know, fawning on them and they make a lot of money. We're not talking about desire in that way. We're talking about what you kind of do without anybody asking you, without anybody paying you, where you feel so comfortable that it's almost like breathing. And you've done it since you were like three years old your way of being, where you feel most like yourself. Now, according to the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam, we're supposed to take that way that we feel most like ourself, which is not our ultimate, real, spiritual self, but it's how I feel most like myself in this particular lifetime, in this particular body. And I'm supposed to connect that to livelihood. So I saw, I forget exactly what it's called, it was a really cool diagram of a, I believe it was a Japanese concept. What you love, what you're good at, what you can get paid for, and what the world needs. You seen that? That was so cool. You know, what you love, what you're good at, what you can get an income for, and what the world needs. So that's kind of this concept of livelihood dharma. Something I love doing, something I'm good at. Of course, I may not be good at it, Immediately, I may need some training and some mentoring to be good at it. Sometimes we don't know what we're good at until we're in a situation where we have a mentor. I didn't know that I was a teacher until I happened, by chance one could say, upon a mentor when I was 24. But from the time I was three years old, when I first went to school, I was hearing from my parents all the time. You know, your teachers are complaining about you in school. I was three years old. Your teachers are complaining about you in school. What were they complaining about? They said, your daughter doesn't want to be a student. She's always coming over to us and telling us how to teach. (laughs) And they thought it was a real problem. You know, my teachers were critical of me for it. My parents were critical of me for it. The whole time I was growing up, my parents would say, there you go, teaching again, cut it out. So I thought it was a real problem of mine that, I, that needed to be fixed. I had no idea I was a teaching None. And then when I was 24, I just happened, by divine providence, I guess, to be into... I met this lovely lady. Uh, we, she and I became very good, very good friends. And she taught me how to teach. And she taught me to love teaching. And it was very quickly obvious, oh, that was always who I was and where I was most comfortable. So sometimes knowing what you're good at isn't that obvious, by the way. And yes, to use what you love and what you're good at in a way that it maintains you, in a way that you can get your food and get your clothes and get your home. And then it's something that does good for the world. That's not something harmful. So a discussion of harm is way beyond what we can go through now. And so that's one's dharma in terms of livelihood. All right? So that's, there's a dharma in terms of our biological age, and to some extent our temperament, in terms of our relationship with the divine, and then in terms of how we maintain ourselves. And all three of those are very connected with desire. That doesn't mean you say, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want to do, and that's my dharma. <laughs> you know, that, that's an absurdity. I want to punch you in the nose, so that's my dharma. I mean, you know, it's not. Like that. And there are principles, which again I don't have time today, but there are principles for livelihood, for example, so that your way of livelihood is actually in, in dharma and is most likely to make you happy with your livelihood. One of the principles is to do. To have, to have your livelihood be the most natural expression of yourself. That's one of them. Another is to give some of your income in charity. Another is to have work that's honest. Again, that's a whole discussion where there's a fair exchange, where you're not exploiting people who work for you, where you're not exploiting things on the planet. Another would be to have real value in what you're doing. Another would be to work without Ego. I know it would be to work with regularly offering what you're doing to the divine. So these are principles that when you follow them, then your livelihood is normal. Yes? Um, I have a question. Yes.
0: Um, if, when people are first stepping onto the path of bhakti, what tends to be a roadblock to stop them?
1: Oh God, it's so individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about a general path of bhakti. So the the first step is just a, a kind of general belief. So if someone says, yeah, I believe in God. Or I believe there's a higher power. I believe in spiritual life. What do you do about it? Nothing.
0: <laughs>
1: or very little. You know, I go to church on Christmas. Or, you know, I have a little angel figuring in my house or something. You know, that's... So you haven't really started the path. You're just like, I accept that there is a path over there. I'm, I'm not walking on it, but I know there is one. I look at it sometimes.
0: <laughs> then
1: usually, for most people, the first step on the path is you start changing your friends. <laughs> you start making friendship with people who are actually acting spiritually. Now, that's a big roadblock for most people because as soon as you do that... Some other people who were your friends before are not going to like it. You've now taken a step or two. And some people are going, like, what's wrong? You're not going to come to the bar with me anymore and drink. Like, what's your problem? You know, or or are you you just... Hmm. You're you're always talking about the chakras. I mean, like... (laughs) Can't you talk about the latest movie? You know, like, you're really getting boring. So you start having to choose, and usually the first block is letting go of some people in your life, unless you're very exceptional. But for most of us, that step where I start saying, I want to hang out with people who are going to support a spiritual journey for me, means that either we stop seeing some people or they stop seeing us. You know, I mean, you might have some people who just say, well, I I don't really... There's nothing, we don't have anything in common anymore. And they jettison you. And people stop at that point. They go, oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, I don't know if I want to do this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, and, and they'll back off. And they'll back, they'll go back to the level of theoretical faith. Yeah, 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 sure, I believe in spirituality. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: But I'm not going to do anything about it. And that, that is a huge roadblock. That's a big roadblock for a lot of people just to be vegetarian. You know, well, my friends won't like it. They won't want to invite me for dinner anymore. They'll feel awkward taking me out of the restaurant. You know, I'll be a burden on people. They won't want to invite me over anymore. So it, it can be a block right there. And I know people who took years to become vegetarians because of it. What are other people going to think? What's going to happen to my friends? What about my family member? What about my brother? I mean, my sister cut me off for years when I took up Krishna consciousness. Ten years, she would talk to me. And we had been super close. Mm. So that was hard. Mm. You know, I mean, it doesn't seem hard to me anymore. I kind of passed that a long time ago. But at that time, it was really, really hard. Mm. And then the next step usually is you start regularly taking up some kind of devotional practices. You know, you start chanting on beads every day, you start reading the, the scriptures, or you set up a little altar in your house, you start offering your food, you start doing some regular service, you start taking up some sort of practices. And the problem with that is you need to do it regularly, you need to do it responsibly. It means what they call opportunity costs. You're not doing something else that you were doing at that time. Maybe with that time you were watching TV, or maybe with that time you were hanging out with your friends at the bar. You know, you're, there's certain, you're, you're, you're paying a cost with your activities. And a lot of people stop at that point. Or, they, or they're very sporadic. Well, okay, you know, I'll chant little when I feel like it, and not when I feel like it. And, and there are many people who stay at that level for a long, long, <clears throat> long, long time. Where they're kind of sporadic, and they don't really make a commitment, and... Now, those are all kind of external roadblocks, although they have some emotional, psychological component. But once you... And I'm I'm never sure if I should tell people this or not. I'm just not sure. I mean, according to psychological research, if you warn people what the problems will be and that, that where they're likely to fail that they're more likely to be enthused to go on than if you don't tell them and they're surprised. Mm. But nobody told me. And I often wonder if anyone had told me if I would have ever made the commitment I did. I just don't know. Now, I'm assuming that what I'm about to say, that any of you for which this would be a discouragement will not really hear what I'm about to say. That, that's my experience. That you just won't hear it or you'll, you'll, you'll distort it and you'll hear something other than what I'm about to say. Because what I'm about to say is, is very heavy. And it is the biggest roadblock for anybody on any of the four main spiritual paths. And that is, once you take up any genuine spiritual discipline regularly, it will surface the things that you need to get rid of. And it will show you things about yourself that you had no idea. Now, some of the things that you'll see are wonderful and glorious. You'll see that I'm a soul, I have nothing to do with this world. I have great power and beauty and strength and youthfulness and wisdom. But seeing that actually makes seeing the other, in one sense, harder because you'll see on this glorious being who is willfully, knowingly, selfishly doing things that are harming myself and others. And you'll see that it's pretty bad. Materialistic people generally think, yeah, sometimes I make mistakes, but I have good intentions. I have a good heart. Even criminals think like this. I was reading an article of the daughter of the serial murderer. He was called Bind, Torture, Kill. And he would pick random people, tie them up, torture them, and kill them. Anyway, he finally got caught, got put in jail. And she was was writing about her experiences as his daughter. And she said he wrote her a letter from prison saying, you know, I really feel I was a good father, I just made some mistakes. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) <laughs> so, any serious practice of a genuine spiritual discipline will surface the fact that we are a divine spiritual being, faultless and pure, who is willingly, knowingly, purposefully doing quite evil things. Quite evil much more evil than you think. Well, most of us, we don't do anything evil. I mean, like seriously, what did I do evil? I, I drove too fast on the road. <laughs> I stole a wooden spoon when I was in you know, kindergarten. What did I do? I lied to my parents where I was last night. I mean, like, what have I done in my life? It's evil. But it surfaces that our motives and our mentality is really to pray. This is not an easy thing to face at all. It's quite difficult. And a lot of people, when this surfaces, they turn around and run away. Most people never progress past that point. And most of what passes in the world for religion or spirituality is all below that. It's all under that. It's like this huge barrier that people stay below it. And the fact that people stay below it is what gives religion such a terrible name in the world.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. people aren't facing their evil and getting rid of it. But they're thinking I'm a very religious or a very spiritual person.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it doesn't it, in any bona fide tradition, this is it's going to happen. Now, some of that thankfully happens beyond our conscious awareness, what Saint what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. So some of this evil. We we just all of a sudden realize that it's gone. Hmm. We're just like, oh I I've I been had a desire to do that for months. Wow, well, that's interesting. So some of it just by the practice of spirituality just goes from us as as if some surgeon operated us in our sleep under deep anesthesia, and we just wake up and we're healed. And then we realize by comparison, wow, I was I was messed up before and now I'm okay. So a lot of it goes like that, but not all of it. Some of it does surface into our conscious awareness, and we have to confront it. And we have to admit to ourselves, whoa, that's bad. That's not just bad, that's that's really, really bad. Whoa, that's really I'm so sorry. I genuinely don't want to be like that anymore. And to come to a deep repentance, not the kind of guilt that makes you sick and miserable, but a repentance that allows you to let go and brings you great joy. And once a person has done that one time, with one thing, then they get the courage to do it over and over and over again, and very soon it becomes one of the most joyful, releasing, liberating things that you could do. But boy, the first one or two times are really, really hard. And most people just don't. It surfaces, and they run away. No, 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 I can't face that! Oh my God! if I faced it I'm going to have to feel guilty and self-hating for the rest of my life and not realizing that it's just like two minutes of agony which one has to have it just has to be there in order to acknowledge it and let it come now if one goes through that then one practically is a liberated person one becomes free. Even before that process is, is totally completed. Mm-hmm. When it's at least 50% completed, you're basically a free person. You're, you're not bound by this world. You're not affected by this world. You start not feeling the pains of the body as pain. You start being able to adjust the health of your body just by the, your mentality. Not easily offended by anything. Not affected by almost anything. The hurdles that come after that are, they're still hurdles, but they're, it's the difference between riding your bicycle up a mountain and riding it down a mountain. You still have to be careful of some things. You can't go around curves too fast. You have to make sure you use your brakes properly. Um, But boy, it's fun riding down the mountain. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're in a context of so much freedom and so much joy that they're only very rarely are they hurdles in any kind of meaningful sense, and then very briefly. And those are moving from enjoying being free and liberated to really getting a, a sweet taste, a, a relish. For everything having to do with Krishna. And then moving a step beyond that to falling in love with Krishna, the person. We have some hesitancy of that because falling in love with Krishna as a person means absolute vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So there's some blocks to that. Do I really want to become completely vulnerable? Do I really want to give myself completely? And then there's some remaining residual little bit of pride, even at that very high level. I am so spiritual. <laughs> because at that point you really are. That's not like, you know, the person who has some crystals and angels in their house and things, oh, and I'm just so spiritual. It's not that kind of pride. It's the kind of pride that you really are so spiritual. <laughs> But if you become proud of that, if you think, Shh, "Wow, <laughs> I'm just above it all, and I'm always blessed," oh, wow. and I can just connect with everyone, and I'm full of compassion and forgiveness, and, oh, wow, my life
0: is just blessed, <laughs> and it really is,
1: and if you know it's genuine but that's the last hurdle is that pride
0: mm-hmm. and
1: letting go of that and saying you know actually whatever I have is also grace and mercy it's not just my own self mm-hmm. it wasn't all that long ago that I was enjoying <laughs> evil I't mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <not> that long ago <laughs>
0: Yes. Would you be okay with sharing with us how the chanting of the mantra, Maha mantra can take us, does, takes us through those stages like that Another, <laughs> yeah. Another time. Another yeah. time.
1: Frankly, any regular process, any regular practice in any bona fide religious system will take you through those stages. Any. if there, There's four main genuine spiritual practices. Devotion connection, knowing connection, action connection, and mastery connection. Any of them done right, and a lot of people have them done wrong, that's another topic. But any of those done right will take you through those stages. Now, As a practitioner of a devotion connection for 46 years, obviously I think the path I'm on is the best. Like, duh, otherwise why (laughs) would I be on it? (laughs) Uh, So you have to take it like that. Uh, And I like to think it's the best because it's objectively the best. But of course I think it's objectively the best because it's what I've chosen. So I understand that I have that prejudice. But I do have that prejudice. I mean, it would be pretty stupid if I thought another path was better and I was on this one. <laughs> no, that would be, I mean, I guess people do that, but that's really dumb.
0: So, <laughs> just that not being
1: true to yourself. Uh, what I see as the advantage of the devotion connection, and especially the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra, is that at the very highest stages... The lower stages is not going to make that much difference, but the very highest stages, we have knowledge of practices that can very specifically and explicitly awaken your individual spiritual form and relationship with Krishna. Could you do that in other practices? Well, theoretically, yes, but you'd have a hard time even getting the knowledge of how to do that. At least in 2019, right now, on the earth, you would have a hard time doing that. First of all, you'd have to go to the mystical practices and you'd have to find a teacher who was really advanced in those mystical practices that had that knowledge. Because otherwise you wouldn't know how to develop that. Now, could you develop that just by some kind of random mercy of Krishna? Yeah, that happens sometimes. So the Hare Krishna mantra, particularly when we start getting to the higher stages, it starts awakening the, the... the very fine, individual, specific, and most intimate relationship with the divine. Which again, most other places don't even know about it. it it's in their scriptures, it's in there. it's there. It's not like it's not there. But to, I mean, we can see it. So once you take up Krishna consciousness under Prabhupada's guidance, now I can look at these other paths and I can see where it's there. I'm like, oh, it's right there, it's right there, it's right there. But most people in those paths don't see it. I mean, like a really simple example is in the Bible. It says, Moses saw God face to face like a friend speaks with another friend. But how many Jews and Christians think that God has a face? It's right there in Exodus. And if you say God has a form and he has a face, no, he doesn't. It says, God wrote on the tablets of stone with his finger. And if you say, well, that means he has a finger. No, 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 that's just poetry. I'm like, but no, he has a finger. It's, it's there in your book.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and the most extreme is the Song of Solomon and the love expressed between the soul and God in the Song of Solomon as, as romantic love and the descriptions of the form of God which are almost identical to descriptions in our Bhagavatam in the fourth canto. Of But, you know, if you go to most Christians and Jews, again, I'm not as familiar with Islam, but if you go to most Christians and Jews and you say, hey, look at that, they'll go, no, 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 that's just metaphorical for poetry. It was not. So they, they're not accessing it. And, and people in those traditions who teach these things, like St. John of the Cross, he was persecuted. You know, St. Teresa of Avila, she was, she was told that she was of the devil. It was a long time before they were recognized as doctors of the church. And you won't find this kind of instruction happening in most religious and spiritual organizations. They're, just, they're not, they're not going to take you to those levels. So. And what's nice about chanting Hare Krishna is you have knowledge of those levels from day one. And you may even experience them to some extent even from the beginning. So you don't have to wait till you're all the way up there. But you, you, you have a very good idea of where you're going And you're starting to cultivate that even from the beginning. And we give this very intimate, very high knowledge just to anybody out on the street, (laughs) which I find kind of interesting that we do that. So, The Hare Krishna mantra is particularly powerful in that regard, that it can reveal the, the most intimate, the most mystical, the highest things. Especially at the higher stages, but even to some extent in the beginning. And there, there aren't too many practices available right now on this planet at this time that can do that. Or that even claim to do that. It's not like other people are claiming to do that and I'm saying, no, 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 it doesn't work. They're not even claiming to take you that high. It's, it's kind of like, you know, not every university offers PhDs. You know, when I was deciding where to get my graduate degree, there were three main universities in my area, but only one of them offered the degrees that I wanted. Is that all right? For a very, 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 very simple explanation. And if you want to think I'm sectarian and biased, that's cool. I'm not offended at all. I know, seriously, I'm really not at all offended by that. I I fully, fully upfront admit that I'm biased. And it could be that objectively I'm wrong. But as far as I'm concerned, because I I have access to that here, it doesn't matter to me whether objectively I'm because I have it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're in love with your spouse, it doesn't matter if objectively there's somebody else in the world with whom you could be happier or as happy. It, it's irrelevant because mm-hmm. you're happy. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I've never heard someone say that. <laughs> that's
1: cool. <laughs> to me, that's very important. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of the reason why I joined the Hare Krishna movement was that Sri Prabhupada never presented Krishna consciousness as something sectarian. No. The first time that I I joined in 1973, the first time I met my spiritual master was in 1974, and uh, there was uh, maybe 15 people mm-hmm. in the room, and I was there with my husband and my father. And my father said, I'm coming here to this Hare Krishna Center just to be with my daughter and son-in-law. I'm not coming to see Krishna. I have my own religion. And Prabhupada said, yes, there can be many religions. He said, just like we're in Chicago, he said, so there are many planes going to Chicago. He said, but they have to know that they're going to Chicago, otherwise there's no meaning of many planes. He said, so you have to know that the goal is to know God and to love Him. And then there can be many religions. And... and and Srila Prabhupada's attitude and teaching like that was one of the main reasons I became his disciple. I had no interest in anything that was self-righteous and sectarian and arrogant. It just never interested me. I always found it revolting. Are there people in our Hare Krishna movement who are sectarian? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. You know, whatever. Okay. It is what it is, what it is. Is that... I always look at that and say, you know, if you need that to do what you're doing, but I think it's kind of sad if you need that to do what you're doing. If you have to feel that objectively what I'm doing is objectively the best and there's no bias involved, then, you know, okay. That floats your boat. You know, if you have to think that, it, like my husband used to say to me, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. And I always would think, well, that's not an objective reality. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did look a little better when I was young, okay. <laughs>
0: oh, <I kiss> you. <laughs> but
1: but even so, even though I did look better when I was young, still when I looked in the mirror, I, I thought, you know, that's not an objective reality. But part of me was still really happy that he said it because I thought, well, maybe he actually believes it.
0: <laughs>
1: I never asked him. I never had the courage to say, do you actually believe that? (laughs) So, you know, I doubt that he believes that. But maybe some guy actually believes that his wife is the most beautiful woman Mm -hmm. in the
0: world. You know. Mm
1: -hmm. And maybe he actually believes that, and maybe he needs to believe that to stay with her. I don't know. If you think she's the most beautiful woman in the world for me, I do feel that there are objective reasons Why Krishna consciousness is the highest way of spirituality. And I've explained some of them to you. I could explain, I could go on for a month explaining all the objective reasons why I feel Krishna consciousness is the highest and best form of spirituality. But there's also a part of me that knows that I'm not objective about the objective aspects. I can't be, it's impossible for me. As soon as you're objective about your spouse, it's not gonna work very well. <laughs> or your kids or you can't be. You can't be fully objective about someone you love or something you love or something you dedicated yourself to. You just can't. It doesn't work. Kills it. You now, I think Krishna is really cool. And I'd like to spend eternity with him, even if he's not God, that's okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that's, you know, that's okay.
1: I, I haven't heard or read about or encountered anything that I find more attractive. Or, from my perspective, objectively more complete or more rational. But even we say that everyone's going to have their own personal relationship with Krishna. Some people are going to be eternally attracted to him in a different form. And that's, that's the ultimate for them. That everyone who achieves the ultimate, everyone's ultimate is a little different. Everyone's ultimate is a little different. Is that all right? Mm. I have to go yes thank you I hope this was I hope you were all happy
0: <laughs> yeah, <you laughs> definitely and I
1: hope you were all happy on a on a higher platform of existence
0: thank you maybe we can chat the maha mantra for Marvora